Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C. This is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. Policy Talk highlights Hudson's work to promote American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. In each episode, we examine, in depth, a specific policy issue that affects the United States and our relationship with the world. We hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you like us, rate us. Since we started walking the earth, humans have always been worried about food. Whether it was hunting it, gathering it, raising it, or growing it, providing ourselves and our loved ones with enough food to survive helped drive human behavior and took the majority of our time and effort. But in the last few decades, the reason we worry about food has changed dramatically. While shortages of food still exist in far too many places, including parts of a prosperous nation like the United States, our main worry today isn't about having enough food. Now we worry about having too much. Or, more specifically, the great public policy concern is that we are eating too much, particularly foods high in processed sugar, fat, and calories. The result has been record rates of obesity and the associated health concerns that accompany it. In their latest survey on the topic, the Centers for Disease Control report that nearly 40% of adults and 18.5% of youth in, in the United States are obese, the highest level ever recorded. It is clearly a public health concern that needs solutions. But how do you encourage people to eat healthier? Some cities have tried taxes on soda and junk food, while countries like Chile have tried aggressive labeling akin to what we see on cigarettes. But are government dictates the proper path, or is there a better way? To help us answer these questions, we are joined on Policy Talk by Hank Cardello, a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute and the director of Hudson's Food Policy Center. Hank's innovative work on food policy has the attention of regulators, lawmakers, activists, and industry alike. Prior to joining Hudson, Hank was an executive at some of the world's largest food and beverage companies, including president of Cadbury Schweppes Sunkiss Soft Drinks, vice president of marketing for Canada Dry, director of marketing for Coca-Cola USA, and brand manager for Anheuser-Busch and General Mills. In 2009, he wrote the book Stuffed, an insider's look at who's really making America fat. The book has been influential, as Hank took an unvarnished look at how decisions made in boardrooms and marketing departments, some of which he'd been in, had helped spur the obesity epidemic. In the book and in his work, as we'll discuss in detail today, he encourages industry to voluntarily make adjustments and changes that encourage better health. Hank is a graduate of Lehigh University and holds an MBA in marketing from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Hank, we appreciate you joining us on Policy Talk. Glad to be here, Brian. So I was really excited to get you as a guest on Policy Talk, Hank, because I, I think the work you're doing is really interesting and will, will interest our listeners. Um, on, I was especially interested in it because it kind of, in a small way, I, I've experienced um, in my career some of the issues that that you are tackling head on. When I left government um, at the end of the Bush administration, I worked for a time for General Electric. And I quickly um, realized, which shouldn't have surprised me, but the difference in culture and and primarily language uh, that exists between corporate America and the public policy world that we have in Washington, which includes, you know, think tanks and and advocacy groups and and folks working on the Hill, folks working in, in government agencies. Um, and my job there was to help uh, the you know GE uh, folks to translate their public policy desires and needs 
um, into 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 public policy, into the language that, that government could understand, and vice, more importantly, frankly, was vice versa, help them understand uh, what folks in, in the public policy world um, really expected from them and, and were after. And what I love about what you're doing is, uh, with your extensive background, which I just gave on, you know, working for all these major food companies and in very senior senior roles and in marketing departments, I think you saw this need, and, and that that's why you set up the Food Policy Center is so that you could uh, help to to translate for and, and be the bridge really between the corporate food world and the public policy world and help them both achieve their goals, speak the same language. Well, Brian, you're exactly correct on that. There, there are huge differences between the public health and nonprofit communities and the business community. And, and that's kind of the role we end up playing here. We, we live in uh, what I like to call the nether world uh, between industry and, and uh, public health community. Um, they really are different species and they speak different languages. Uh, from a public health perspective, again, they're on mission. They're trying to solve some very serious problems. Uh, they're a highly educated group. They're well-intended and they're trying to make impact, but most of them, if not all of them, don't have a business background, so they don't really fully appreciate what it takes to motivate the corporations to get engaged and to really jump in to make a difference. Uh, whereas the companies, again, they're focused on their operations, they're trying to build their market share and their sales and their profits, uh, which is their fiduciary responsibility. On the other hand, in today's world, you really have to take a step beyond that and recognize that consumers want transparency and the reputations can be impacted by things above and beyond just the basic business ABCs. So again, you, you have two separate rails and we're trying to bring those, those train lines together. And again, that's really our role to end up with pragmatic solutions. That's great. So tell us about the, you kind of have been, but tell us about the Food Policy Center and, and exactly what um, work you've been doing, uh, studies you put out, things of that nature. Well, we've been fortunate enough to be the, uh, the first uh, pilot, if you would, for Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to examine uh, the business case for selling healthier products. In other words, does it make sense for companies to even care? about selling better for you products from a financial perspective. And uh, to their credit, they thought outside their box and thought it would make perfect sense for someone uh, like ourselves who come out of business and understand industry. And they stretched themselves and supported us in that effort. And we uh, came up with the very first business case called uh, uh, you know, Better For You Foods. It's just good business. And it was the first time it was ever examined to see the impact on companies for doing this. And we did find that companies, uh, the ones who were selling more and more of these better for you products, smaller portions, things like that, were growing faster. So it makes business sense now. It's not wagging the moral finger to change. It's rather do this for yourselves and your shareholders because it's, it's a smart move. So that was a big, big um, initiative that we led the way on. And when, when exactly was that? We started that in uh, around 2010, 2011. Uh, it was the first time we did that. I had launched my book, Stuffed, uh, in 2009. So as a result of that and dialogue with the public health and nonprofit communities, uh, we started seeing ways we could bridge 
some of the thinking and start advancing solutions a little bit more aggressively than have this either or kind of approach. Uh, you know, industry is evil, and of course, industry is basically saying, you guys don't understand my business. Try to move on from that. So we've subsequently done that. Uh, I've also uh, written in The Atlantic, and now I write in Forbes on, again, pragmatic solutions to show both sides how industry can do it better and grow, and also to the public health crowd, how they can be more effective in making change, engaging industry. So there are two different philosophies approaching us. I, I think everyone agrees America has an obesity problem. Um, there is the let's regulate our way out of it, you know, top-down government, whether it's local or federal, telling companies you can only have this many calories, this much sugar, you know, the real kind of more draconian setting the standards. And then there's the, you know, more libertarian, let's do the free market, let's have the market decide. It sounds like you're you're working in, in a space where you think companies have market incentives to do this and to um, do it successfully. And it looks, I mean, just from my eyes as a consumer, as I've seen the food space change over the last even just decade particularly, there seem to be a lot more options out there um, uh, that are uh, giving consumers more opportunities to eat healthy, to be transparent, know what's in their food, uh, and to, to make those choices for themselves. Is that, w- would you say in this kind of, I wouldn't call it a battle, but it kind of is between let's regulate and let's have the market handle it, that the market's responding well to that? Well, the market is responding, no doubt about it. I mean, companies are thinking more about offering what we'll call a continuum of choice to appeal to a pretty broad array of consumers, whereas before, when I was in the soft drink business, we had soda. That was it. We had Coke, we introduced Diet Coke, and we had Sprite, and those were our biggies, maybe Fanta, and that was it. Not too many options. And, of course, now they have bottled waters like Dasani and Aquafina and Nestle Nestle Pure. Uh, You know, snack companies are coming out with smaller sizes on their products. So there's a lot more opportunity for them to sell products that are also on trend. We, we, we can't forget that they are slaves to the consumer, what right. the consumer wants. And the companies that don't pay attention to the consumers get in trouble. So this is, number one, a market response. On the other hand, it's not Uh, let's say unfettered capitalism was not going to make progress on this because the the standard model, if you would, uh, whereas we just care about our bottom line and and growing our profits and market share was not a strategy to help address this and they'd missed the boat on this. So in a sense, we're someplace, we're in a hybrid model right Right. now, which seems to be working pretty well. Uh, you referenced um, some of the more draconian approaches that are taking. Yeah, talk about those. Nonprofit. And, and I'm not a believer in that, and there's a reason for it. Uh, first of all, I feel that those, uh, they're playing with a limited toolkit there because of the lack of understanding of business. So it, it takes more of a punitive approach. I have to protect the consumer from these corporations that are imposing highly caloric, unhealthy products out there. You know, so conceptually I get that, but the point is um, when we jump to things like taxes or changing labels or banning or constraining, et cetera, you're taking away choice. And more importantly, from our perspective, you're not really addressing the core 
problem. It's not about destroying corporations. It's about reversing obesity rates and right. diabetes rates. And we ought to stay focused on the objective rather than whom we push around. Uh, I have also not seen uh, the end results coming from some of these more harsh regulations, uh, which I think is an important factor. I think there's some evidence that in some cases they work, but in most cases that we've seen and analyzed, um, I'm not convinced that uh, taxing, for instance, sodas. I mean, we understand we want to reverse sugar beverage consumption or at least lower it and have healthier products consumed instead, like waters, sparkling waters, lower calorie right. drinks, et cetera. Fine. It makes sense. But when I look at the way the taxation has gone out, uh, classic examples, um, Chicago and Philadelphia were finding that people are driving over the county lines to go buy their groceries. So they're still buying the product. And secondly, they're bringing their grocery money outside the cities into other counties and depriving the cities from a revenue source. So yeah. you have the unintended consequences going on there. It's a lot of activity going on in Latin America. That's kind of a precursor for what we're going to see here. They've got a Mexico soda tax, which, yes, it has reduced the consumption of sugary beverages. But the one thing that's not being done is they don't do something called what we call a substitution effect analysis. In other words, all right, we drink less soda, but what's the net impact? You know, Do we switch to something else? Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, are we consuming any fewer calories or is obesity, our obesity rates going down? And we don't have that proof. We don't have that proof. So that's, that's where I'm saying, be careful what we wish for. Because You're pulling we, one lever and you don't know what don't other know what the thing other. might be popping up someplace else. Yeah, and, and, we, we, and again, we're not solving the problem. Right. Again, well-intended, so I'm not saying it, it's not well-intended. You know, we have, there's something else going on there in Chile. Um, they now have something called black stop sign labeling that's going on, for instance, snack products and right. beverages. I've seen pictures of this. And they're ugly. Um, they're really black stop signs if you have a And there's more than one. They they tell you about, so for the viewers, or I'm sorry, the listeners, these are literally black stop signs that say this product contains high levels of sugar. This product contains high levels of fat. But if it has all those things, it has a stop sign for each, right? You could have four stop signs yeah. on your product and not even get to the brand name at that point. Right. And, and again, what we've learned, because we bring a marketing approach to what we do, we're marketers, mm -hmm. all right? So we're saying, how do we bring marketing and business thinking into the public health arena to address public health problems? We use a, an approach called consumer segmentation. In other words, typically public health has looked at the consumer as the same. Yeah. You know, one size fits all. We break it down into segments. And ironically, for instance, we find that those people who are your target to try to help, where you have, again, high rates of a diabetes and, and obesity, they're not reading the labels as much as the people devising the strategy. You know, the people who devise the regulations, they get health, they live healthy, they're eating well, et cetera. They're not the problem yet the strategies and policies that are being de developed there appeal to them and don't appeal resonate. Right. They don't resonate with the folks. Well, so, this, this is your, sorry to interrupt, but this is your the study you put out this summer where it was Why They Buy, um, where you did a, you can describe it, but you interviewed over 2,000 people across the country, a comprehensive study breaking people into segments of, of their weight, right? There was healthy weight, 
and obesity and a couple of categories in between. Um, and what did you find from that? I think you're talking about it now, but what specifically do you see? Well, it was eye-opening. I mean, there were certain things you expected. For instance, let's say with sodas, you know, people who are in the, the healthy weight category, if you would, they're consuming fewer sodas and drinking more water and et cetera, lower calorie items. And then those who have obesity, of course, uh, have higher consumption. But we learned that it's, it's not simply a product consumption issue. There's different headsets. There's different mindsets. There's different attitudes across. Uh, you do see um, um, it's a little bit more, uh, what should I say, short-term yeah. for those who have the problem. So it, it's more impulsive. And, and these are their words. They're not our words. We're not interpreting anything. These, these are answers to specific questions. And we're finding that certain food groups seem to be problematic. I mean, snacks, you know, sweet baked goods yeah. are seriously uh, overconsumed by those who, who are struggling. Uh, interestingly, uh, chocolate and candy, everyone likes it. So they yeah, get, I noticed they, that. They that get was, an that exemption. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we see that everyone likes that. So we, we're all walking. So they get an exemption on that one. But we also found that, uh, you know, attitudes towards sugar and all these hot policy buttons are the purview of the people designing the policy. So when we start going down the list of, uh, you know, um, gluten-free and GMO-free and natural sweeteners and all those concerns, there is a, a narrow group, let's, let's call it 20% of the population that's really totally invested in caring about that. But now let's go meet our neighbors. Yeah. And it starts falling off the cliff. And there's clearly... Uh, almost parallel to the way we look at our politics. There's like 40% out there. They don't care. Nutrition is down the list. You know, and some of it is, you know, lower income. Listen, I have other problems besides worrying about this something being gluten-free. I'm worried about affordability and uh, those kind of issues. And the affordable stuff is often the most uh, bad for you, High, high calories, high fat. Um, heavily processed, right? Yeah, and that's a big issue. And and the food companies know they have to do this. I mean, clearly processed foods are seeing a decline in their sales. They call that center of store. Yeah. You know, where you get more of your boxed items, canned right, items, right, right. et cetera, like that. The growth is coming, what we call around the perimeter of the store. The fresher items are growing, um, you know, locally sourced, all those things are growing pretty aggressively. So again, this this is a business decision. Yeah. So if you so if you can't, um, as you said, folks in the in the category that you know need to watch what they eat the most, and the obese, the the heavily overweight, uh, these are the ones that you're saying, and your research shows, which I've, I've looked at, that that they don't respond to the the tactics that activist groups and and the people who are more health conscious think will will help them. In fact, it, in some cases, I read it, it kind of repels them to see things like now with less sugar, they're like, well, I'm not buying that. I mean, it, it pushes them away. So how do you reach those folks um, in a way that, you know, through this is where you specialize. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. How do you how do you market to those folks in a way that isn't deceptive, but helps kind of encourage lower obesity rates in the U.S.? Well, perhaps not deceptive, but I like to call it stealth health. Okay. All right, where don't advertise or don't announce what you're doing. 
So, for instance, um, we see this in restaurant foods. When people go to restaurants, they don't want to be lectured and hectored about what they're about to eat. So what you do is you could make your changes. You can still have great-tasting product. You, you don't have to go in and have a 1,500-calorie pasta dish. It doesn't. Right. There's plenty of room to reduce calories and have something taste great. But don't tell them you're pulling out sodium. Yeah. or getting rid of sugar or something, because that automatically communicates that it doesn't taste as good. And that's the rub. So yeah. where we propose is that if you have a product that's generally perceived as healthy, let's take yogurt. You know, yeah. If you say yogurt has less sugar in it, that's fine. It's consistent with the product. You expect yeah. it to be healthy. You know, If I have a donut, maybe not so, but you, know, you can give me a smaller version, all right, and maybe play with the formula a little bit. You know, those kind of things. Those are little stealth things that can be done that are, you can pull out trillions of calories out of the food supply doing something like that. And these, and these are the kind of things you are advising companies, food companies to do. So let's use a specific example. I know you've worked with, um, uh, you know, candy candy makers on their products. And, and tell us how, how that project works as an example on maybe the candy bar size. Well, that was that's really a classic one, and to their credit, they stepped up from a leadership perspective and said, all right, we get it. Uh, we need to take a leadership role here. It was led by uh, John Downs, uh, who's the CEO of the National Confectioners Association, and uh, Tracy Massey, who at the time was president of Mars Chocolate. Yeah. And So it takes leadership, first of all, which um, kudos to them for that. And then secondly, what was determined in talking to their membership was that, you know, what can you do? We sell candy and chocolate. Uh, so what they decided to do is we we served as an architect to help them structure a commitment where they would not only be more transparent by putting calories on all their, you know, over 90% of their packages, but also uh, by 2021, they will, uh, more than 50% of their products intended for, let's call it instant consumption, you know, a lot of candy bars you find at yeah. checkout, things like that, more than half of those would be 200 calories or less. So you right. won't have any massive, you won't have that massive sizes there. So that's a classic way to step up. They are and what normally they are. what, 240? Uh, uh, was that the standard? So you're taking, what is that, 20% off the, uh, off the, the, calories of it yeah even even more on some of that there's yeah. there's a number of ways they can get there I mean if you're selling a product that's 210 or 220 calories you can get it down to 200 when it's higher it gets more difficult so now you're talking about innovation reformulation yeah. uh, smaller portion sizes for instance I know that Mars was selling pro 100 calorie bars in in a container in like CBS stores mm -hmm. so that's the kind of thing you could yeah. do it's it still tastes great. It's just you're presenting it in a way that doesn't encourage overconsumption. So to their credit, um, they're doing that. They have a five years um, from the original date to get that done. And they use the Partnership for a Healthy America Summit stage uh, to announce that. And so it, it's worked well for their members because they got a lot of visibility. Yeah. At the same time, they're doing the right thing. So it's win-win. Well, is it? I mean, also, if they're reducing portion size, it's got to be helping their profit line a little bit too, right? If you're well, putting less candy bar, I doubt the price dropped. Am I wrong there? 
Well, it depends how far you come yeah, down. Yeah. <laughs> you squeeze a few ounces out, you might charge the same. Yeah. If if you drop it a hundred calories, then yeah, yeah the price the, will come down. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but generally that doesn't hurt. That the margins are usually healthy yep. on smaller portions, so uh, they don't lose. And quite frankly, the consumer absolute dollars don't spend as much. Right. And again, a lot of these products are are consumed uh, on checkout. And checkout has been attacked as an area. But again, we learned that everyone eats chocolate. It's interestingly about chocolate is it only accounts for 2% of the calories. And yet everybody thinks yeah, people, yeah. people are doing face plants into troughs right, of chocolate, right. and, and they don't. But again, here's a classic example of leadership that they yeah. can show the rest of the industry. And uh, I'm actually working hard to try to get the restaurant sector to do the same thing and perhaps some of the sweet baked good snack folks to do it. Again, it's good for their business. No, yeah. And again, they, well, they it also could, it also keeps the hopefully if it's successful, keeps the regulators off their off their tail and and allows them to, you know, be leaders and, and do something that's socially good, which is always good for your your brand um, that consumers see you as, as helping folks. I've noticed personally when I go to the, to the checkout now, one of the big changes is, you know, there used to be the king size bars of things or, you know, there'd be two candy bars, one would say king size. The, now the t- phrase has changed to sharing size. So it, it does psychologically, not that I ever bought those, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge chocolate person, but but now when I see a bag of M's, M&M's that's the old king size one and it says sharing size, psychologically you're like I shouldn't eat this whole thing and it's just a little it's not it's not <laughs> nagging me but at the same time it, it does plant that little I mean marketing really is about psychology uh, it's understanding what drives consumers what makes them make the decisions they make and and how they f- it reflects on their own self-image but uh, I, I found that one to be kind of effective and I know it's right up the lines of what what you're talking about and the work you're working yeah on. and in fact uh, uh a few of the companies are actually in those sharing sizes. They're actually not giving you one solid bar, let's right, say. They're right. breaking it into a couple of pieces yeah, yeah. so that each one might be, you know, 100, 150 calories instead of, you know, 300. Yeah, no, that's that's great. So as I look at kind of the food space, and you, you're a marketer, as I said, that understands this as well as anyone, especially with the research, it, it feels like in recent years that – and many things in our society, the internet kind of atom, atomizes things, so you can find little segments of a market that you didn't know existed before. But with food, it it, it kind of feels like, and maybe it's always been this way. You have the perspective; you can you can tell me. But we seem to have kind of bifurcated in America between a group of folks that you know the, the whole food. They shop at Whole Foods. They care about organic. They care about something certified, non-GMO. All of these kind of labels and certifications. And a lot of it, to me, seems to be about what the food says about them and, and how other people perceive them. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, hey, the, the Taco Bell crowd that I, I'm I am want I'm part of sometimes. <laughs> that that is a you know, hey, here's I'm going to give you something kind of just ridiculously high in calories and and uh, cheap as we can get it. Um, you know, you think of a college student, but I think a lot of people carry that diet well past their college age years <laughs> throughout their whole life. Um, is, is this more, it feels like, you know, back in the 70s before people 
kind of all ate from the same diet, and now it seems like they're what you eat set like everything in our society. It kind of almost feels politicized. What you eat says something about you in a way that it didn't before. Is that accurate, or what have you seen as as eating trends over the years? And and am I describing it correctly? Well, the eating trends have changed, no doubt about it. Especially they've accelerated the last five or ten years. Uh, I think it used to be a little bit more stable, uh, even when. Oh, let's say chains like Wendy's tried to institute snack uh, salad bars in some yeah. of their restaurants. They didn't do well in the early days. No one was inclined to change. And now, uh, really, they started tracking the whole obesity crisis. CDC started tracking in 1985. And it didn't really take a lot of traction until the mid-90s to late-90s. And then it's exploded in this century. So you see the diet shifting now, but again, going back to our segmentation analysis, right. the people who drive are trying to drive the change. They're totally attuned in. Uh, it's a combination of they really buy into healthy eating and healthy lifestyles, so they're walking their talk. Yeah, uh, you know whether it's for social uh, strata or not, I don't know. I would suspect some, but I, these are people who really get it and want to yeah. want to live healthy lives. Uh, it hasn't trickled all the way down, though. There's, there's an interesting group right in the middle we call fence sitters, and they are striving to eat healthier. Their biggest challenge is you, know, you get couples that are both working, they've got kids, and you know what? I've got 20 minutes at night to feed my family, and they end up going through the drive through window very frequently. Right, right. So they're the ones really having the toughest time because they're trying and they struggle. So they're trying to make it better. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's, there's that 40 percent to, you know, it's just not on my, my radar. Yeah. And so I think you're always going to have that stratification of consumers. Uh, but no doubt about it, there, there is a movement. This is not a fad. No. This, this is a real trend towards healthier eating. And, and now you've got millennials. I just saw a report yesterday that said the millennials, higher number than I thought, are 91 million strong, even more than the baby boomers. And what happens is they get, they're, they're linking eating healthier with sustainability, all right, those right. hot button issues. And they're starting to demand that. So they're, they're putting pressure on industry to change. And you see what's happening is some of these food companies are being laggards about changing. And you see some of these upstarts that are being funded by venture capitalists now with non-meat meat type products, sure. you know, meat crumbles, et cetera, that are starting to take off. So we're, we're kind of in the midst of this total revolution. Yeah, so this industry. is a real revolution. It's not just a fad of— Not a fad. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I see it— we're in downtown Washington, D.C., so we have a plethora of food options for lunch. But just over the last, you know, I've been here 20 years, just the change in the kind of places you can eat, um, a lot more of the uh, locally sourced food, definitely processed, is is not there. You've got all these places that sell, you know, sweet green and kava and, and sell fresh bowls. Even, you know, even places like District Taco are selling you what is, you know, they say it doesn't have any hormones in the meat, yep. doesn't have, you know, is freshly cooked and prepared. And there's a great, great difference. It's, you know, I enjoy all the options and I, you know, what's the future for fast food as this proliferates? Right now, I know it's not in every community in America, but if it's successful, it will probably move out and as long as they can keep the the price in line where, where people can afford it. But what what's the future for, for food and fast food and, and those sorts of things? Do you see them being able to keep up with this? Well, I think they have to. 
if they want to survive. I mean, McDonald's has always struggled with it. And to McDonald's credit, they've done the most. They've made a lot of changes to their kids' meals, happy meals, things like that, where, uh, you know, they don't automatically throw the fries in there. You'll have right. applesauce and things of that nature. So so they're, to me, they're setting a nice example for the restaurant industry about how it can be done yeah. without destroying your business. In fact, if you really think about it from um, a marketing perspective, it allows you not only to keep your current customer, but a lot of people don't want to eat McDonald's, but if you give them other options that are healthier, now you can bring the whole family in yeah. at this point. So the smart ones have gotten that. There are others that don't, and I, I see that industry as a laggard industry. But there's another trend going on, too. You referenced that there's so much choice going on there, all these restaurants, right. so much food. And what's happened is you're, you're getting to the point where you're, you're moving towards customization, almost individualization of food. Right. In 10 years, you know, you'll be able to determine for your particular DNA what's the best diet for you. I mean, you can start getting those tests yeah, right yeah. now. That'll be a lot more prevalent uh, in that period so you could optimize your health and your nutrition. You're going to see that trend starting to pop up over the next few years. So again, that's what I mean. This is a revolution. Right, right. This, this is not static because food historically has been very static. Yeah, no, it has. I mean, that's I I am I remember the kind of things that that uh, my mom who was who was and is a great cook would make for me in the you know my childhood in seventies eighties and it was really reminiscent of what she had grown up on and her parents had grown up on you know you had mashed potatoes and a roast and you know maybe you threw some broccoli in there um, which I've now learned to love <laughs> um, but but you know I look at it now and the things I feed my kids when we when we go on our road trips to grandma's house in upstate New York, uh, we, we kind of have to stop at McDonald's halfway because that's all that's in central Pennsylvania. Yeah. But my kids love the salads. I mean, they do have options there that allow you, and you can see the calories, which you couldn't see before. Um, that I, I actually wanted to talk about that specifically, the calorie counts and the transparency you see in the labeling. Um, we saw, you know, in, in cities like New York where Mayor Bloomberg uh, pushed a, a, a policy of we want to have these on there, uh, which is painful if you go into a Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> it's not for some businesses. It's not great. Um, but we're now are we seeing that has that continued as a trend in cities by regulation or is it just happening now by people trying to or businesses trying to preempt that by doing it themselves? Well, there is there's regulation pending on that. Uh, you know, for chains that, where there's 20 or more restaurants. Right. And, and no doubt about it, consumers are paying attention. Again, you see the skew towards people who really are pursuing a healthier eating yeah. habits, yeah. paying more attention to it. They did an earlier test in a Starbucks on their beverage and food, and they did see a slight decline in food consumption, but not on the beverage side. Okay. But, but again, you, you're talking to a crowd that's willing to spend $4 for a cup of coffee. Right, right. So it's, it, it's not the broadest audience. But nevertheless, just having it visible will help with decisions. So I think long-term, transparency is good. People ought to know what's in their, in their food, and calories yeah. is the core of the problem. So know it. You know, you can go to a cheesecake factory and you start looking for an individual piece of cheesecake at a thousand yeah. plus calories and you say, you know, maybe I'll share this with maybe, my wife. Maybe I'll eat this over three <laughs> days, a few bites at a time. Yeah. And it's still wonderful, <laughs> but it, yeah. it does make you think. It does. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So what, 
you've mentioned some of the trends that we're going to see more of, uh, I guess, personal customization of your food. What other things can we can we see going forward that you see on on either the regulatory side or, or the or the business side? Well, I think on the regulatory side, there is a push um, by many in the public health community to um, really expand the taxation of what they call broadly junk foods, and and their definition is not only the sodas, but any you know the snacks and and confection products, right. uh, things like that, uh, even even meal type products. There's push for it. Um, you don't see it much in the United States except on a municipal level. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, globally, it's happening. Uh, with sodas, for instance, there were proposals out there like in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia and even in India where the taxes were upwards of 40 to 50 percent. So okay. that, yeah. that that hurts. That, that's You're getting into tobacco land, which right. is kind of the mentality oftentimes. In the U.K., you, they have an interesting system that might – uh, promulgate across other countries, and as they have a tiered uh, tax on sugar levels in beverages, and they'll probably okay. try to expand that. So, again, I understand the motive for it. I just would like a more aggressive um, role for business to fix their own issues, quite frankly, for their own survival, because, again, they're playing in the center of the aisle, center of the store, yeah, and they run the risk of going obsolete. You know, that, that's the biggest risk. They're very sure. conservative to begin with, and they're not necessarily aggressive, with some exception, you know, like the Mars and the Nestle's right. and the Unilever's and Dannon's. Once you get past that, you don't quite see the level of innovation. So, again, for their own survival, they're going to have to reach out for fresher products. You're going to see fresher products, more local-type products. Right, so, right. the local doesn't go national. It's just no. local. Yeah. But you'll see it, and it'll be healthier, no doubt about it. Health, health will become the new norm. Okay. It yeah. won't be this obtuse kind of topic we talk about. It, it'll be the minimum ante. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting as you talk about these things. Some of these things, I know there's there's studies that show the benefits of them. Others, you know, locally sourced sounds fantastic. But one of the reasons we're able to feed the world is because of the incredible supply chains yeah. that we have that we can produce food on a massive level and, and keep 7 billion people. You know, there's parts that, that have food shortages. But but majority of the people alive. So some of this, you're talking over a marketing perspective, reality and what the science shows isn't necessarily as important as where the trends are headed. Is that is that fair? Or how much how much does actual science and, you know, studies about how bad, let's say, something like, you know, high fructose corn syrup is versus regular sugar, uh, how much do those play into these kind of decisions? Well, I think they do, actually. The World Health Organization, which is probably the preeminent body relative to uh, these kind of issues, clearly has declared war on sugar, kind of the way we had a war on fat until right, we right. realized mm, maybe this isn't the thing we need to focus <laughs> on. Right. But nevertheless, there there is a, you know, it's public health enemy number one right now, and that's yeah. sugar. And there, there are, is a body of study. Uh, behind that. So it's it's not arbitrary. And, you know, it, it's empty calories. It, you know, the key is the approach to trying to solve the problem where it, sometimes it goes off the rail. It doesn't mean every single product that has sugar in it ought to be obliterated. It just means right. let's not do face plants into mounds of, of sugar. So I see that science being important. I think I'm, I'm hopeful that science can clear up, for instance, uh, gluten-free. A lot of people 
uh, choose to eat gluten-free, whereas celiac disease is only 1% or less right, of the right, population. Right. Now, some people might have sensitivities to wheat where eating less gluten might help them, so you know, won't yeah. hurt you. You know, when you talk about uh, genetically modified yeah, products, was, GMOs, right. you know, that's, that's another one because the science, interestingly, doesn't really support uh, a reason to get worried about those products, yet from a consumer perspective and a feeling about having, you know, as the term is used, frankenfoods out there, right. um, there's a movement to get away from those kind of products. So that, that's where the science fights the reality and now you're into consumer perception right. on these. And again, as marketers, what the smart marketer will probably do is uh, identify products that are GMO-free for those consumers who care about that and not indicate that for the rest of their consumers. Yeah. Well, there, there are just so many topics about, I mean, everyone eats food, so we all have opinions on it. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's fascinating to, to kind of hear about your work and how you're, you're trying to, like I said at the beginning, bridge that, that uh, gap between policymakers, these, you know, activist groups and, and how they approach companies and, and, and maybe find more helpful ways for everybody to work together. So thanks for your, for your work. And, and we appreciate you joining us today um, on Policy Talk. I also want to thank all of our listeners for downloading this episode and for being subscribers to Policy Talk. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do and tell your friends about us also. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for episodes, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. From all of us here at Hudson Institute, we appreciate you listening. I'm Brian Blake.